ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. This is an opportunity to put huge pressure on the government over an issue that has long been a difficult one for Labor and Mm. to really try and wedge it in a political sense, uh, looking at the domestic politics. I look forward to leading a government that makes Australians proud. This election didn't just change a government, it was a green slide. Safe Liberal seat, two-term incumbent, independent. We need to go back to our values, our principles, look closely at what has happened. Our policies will be squarely aimed at the forgotten Australians in the suburbs across regional Australia. Hello and welcome to the party room, the final party room for this enormous year. I'm Patricia Carvellis from RM Breakfast, joining you from Wurundjeri Country in Melbourne. And I'm Frank Kelly on Ghana Country here in Adelaide. And yes, it has been an enormous year, another jam-packed year in politics, PK. And while the Albanese government has ended the year at a low point, I think it's fair to say, it's also fair to say that it's been a year in two halves for Labor. We're going to get into that with Karen Middleton shortly. She's the chief political correspondent for the Saturday paper. But PK, there were announcements aplenty this week as the government's trying to gain some momentum before heading into the holiday season. The Treasurer released his mid-year economic review, and that's, of course, in the context of the cost of living crisis. And the government announced significant reductions in net migration, which is a really hot political issue right now. But the big one, I think, the big announcement this week to start is Australia's change position on a ceasefire in Gaza. Just to give people the background, on Wednesday morning, Anthony Albanese and his New Zealand and Canadian counterparts signed a joint statement calling for a sustainable ceasefire in Gaza and an end to the, quote, continuous suffering of its citizens. The statement went on to say that any ceasefire cannot be one-sided. It condemned the Hamas attacks of October the 7th and demanded Hamas release all hostages and stop using civilians as human shields. So that was the statement. That was Wednesday morning. Shortly afterwards, it was revealed that Australia then voted in favour of a UN General Assembly resolution demanding an immediate humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza. That resolution passed 153 in favour 10 against and 23 abstained. Here's Foreign Minister Penny Wong. Uh, Australia shares the grave concerns that I have articulated previously about the dire humanitarian situation in Gaza. Uh, Human suffering is widespread and it is unacceptable. This resolution, which we have supported, is a call for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire. This is the world coming together to urge uh, that these pauses be resumed so civilians can get the humanitarian aid they desperately need. Australia is part of that call and we supported this resolution. We supported this resolution, the world coming together, PK. That's certainly true if you look at those numbers, but this is a shift in Australia's position, isn't it? It is, Fran, and it's curious that the government's trying to tell us that there's no shift and it's all consistent with what it's been saying. My view is that it's absolutely a shift, but it's a shift that's happened on a spectrum over a period of time. So there's been a shifting position over uh, uh, several, several weeks, right? So in late October, Australia abstained from voting for a, from a very similar resolution saying it was incomplete because it didn't condemn the Hamas attacks on Israel on October the 7th. A pretty seminal 
and key event in the latest chapter in the Middle East. Now, what's significant about the shift is that this latest UN resolution also didn't condemn the October 7th attacks. Now, there were two attempts pushed by the US and supported by us to include that. Now, Australia fought for that, argued for that, but didn't win. It still voted for this, though, Fran, Mm. and that's where the difference is. Now, the UN General Assembly, it's all symbolic, but it carries a lot of moral authority, in my view, and puts uh, us very much separate to the US and the UK that abstained again. So the US voted against this, didn't it? They absolutely did. They have been strong with Israel, but to be to be very accurate about what the US has been doing, in recent days we have heard a, a very different tone from Joe Biden who has been applying lots of public pressure on Israel about the war and talking about its loss of international support for its war effort. Yeah, he described and it as indiscriminate bombing, which I think really sort of it's made tough people raise language. their eyebrows. Yeah. But in, in but in practical terms, it used its veto at the UN on the Security Council still. It has not, in a practical sense, changed yet its, its actions. Although, if you listen to the rhetoric, uh, Joe Biden has not been shy about his views about the way that this is happening. Now, as a friend of Israel, which clearly the US is, and I believe Australia still to be, but good friends can also be quite frank, right? Like my best friends are very honest with me when they think that there are things going wrong. And I think this is Australia's attempt to do that. But Fran, it's really important to say that this didn't just happen. This has happened because internally in the Labor Party, there has been enormous pressure on the leadership, enormous from Labor ranks and Labor branches to change its position on this war. And Clearly, Anthony Albanese, in consultation with very senior senior um, people, I mean, Jim Chalmers, the Treasurer, confirmed that he'd been consulted, but essentially the Prime Minister and Penny Wong, with um, some of the leadership group, decided that they were going to vote in favour of this uh, very key um, vote in the General Assembly, but also to put out that joint statement the Prime Minister did on the war, and it is a key shift, and it is actually really significant, I think. Yes, it's significant, and we're going to get into the domestic politics of this, but it's a pivot, that's for sure, and a significant one. But in a way, it's not a radical shift to make or position to take. I mean, thousands of women and children have died, are dying in Gaza since the first vote. The world has watched in horror as Israel continues what looks from the outside to be untargeted or, to quote Joe Biden, indiscriminate bombing. 152 other countries supported the motion. Even the Pope has now called for a ceasefire. But it is a shift. And as you say, it puts us out of step with the US, which doesn't happen much. And here at home, it puts Labor directly in the firing line of the opposition. We all want to see an end to human suffering, but nobody should want to see a situation uh, where there is a premature end uh, and ultimately Hamas simply regroups, rearms and recommits the types of atrocities that happened on the 7th of October. That's the shadow Foreign Minister Simon Birmingham. Now, the opposition has been extremely critical of the government's position on the Israel-Gaza war from the outset. And they lost no time, Fran, as you know, slamming the government uh, in relation to this vote. First, as we heard there, Simon Birmingham, 
He's actually in Israel right now on this delegation. Um, and then what was really a conga line of coalition MPs followed. Shadow Home Affairs Minister James Patterson tweeted that, and I'm quoting, Labor's shameful abandonment of Israel and our US and UK allies at the UN is another display of weak leadership on national security and accused the Prime Minister of caving to domestic pressure, and we will revisit that. Then Julian Lisa, who is was on the front bench for the Liberal Party, now on the back bench, but also a, a Jewish MP, came out swinging saying this was a decision about Graindler, that's the PM's, you know, seat, not Gaza. Now, Fran, while the Albanese government has largely been trying to walk a very, very thin tightrope and acknowledge both sides of the conflict, the opposition's position from the outset has been hardline pro-Israel and then on the Greens, on the left, it's been hardline pro-Palestine and the I think the Labor Party is the one that really is genuinely representing... Uh, a range, Arab Australians and um, Jewish Australians. Mm. And so their position has been the most wicked one of all. Yeah, indeed. And, you know, where do the politics lie in this, really? I mean, backing the call for an immediate ceasefire suggests the government believes not only perhaps it's the right call to make, but it's also a call supported here at home. And as you've mentioned, they're doing it because in some part of this decision is because they are getting squeezed in their many of their own electorates and the Greens and the left, the progressive left, if you want to call it, of the electorate is calling for, you know, a ceasefire, no ifs, no buts, you know, no, in, in their words, no weasel words. But the Arab community was absolutely outraged when Australia abstained from that early UN vote. Many of those people live in Labor electorates. Government MPs have got that message loud and clear. They are not happy with the Albanese government. But my view is the Albanese government trying to walk that tightrope has done it fairly well and and pretty fairly, stressing Israel's right to defend itself, but adding the way it does that matters. That was the quote from Penny Wong originally a few weeks ago. And then she also came on and said Australia needs to move towards a sustainable ceasefire. The Jewish community here in Australia, though, they're not happy by and large with that position from the government. It's sort of an only a hardline position for or against will satisfy some, many perhaps, that's the fact. But the other fact is that I think most Australians look on, see innocent people, women and children, doctors and nurses and aid workers and others being killed in these Israeli attacks and they're horrified. You know, it, it doesn't mean they support Hamas, they don't, but, you know, innocent people can't keep being shelled. As we've said before, PK, this is such a complex, devilish problem. But in terms mm. of crude politics, I think the crudeness of that is the opposition believes some part of its core that any time it can accuse a Labor government or a Labor leader of being weak and cowardly, it is a win for them. Remember way back, John Howard saying that Kim Beasley didn't have the ticker. That was a line that really cut through, really sort of damaged Kim Beasley way back then. I think that is some part of this dynamic. I think it's definitely part of that dynamic. And we're going to revisit it soon with Karen. It's a wicked problem for the Prime Minister. And also, how much credit will he get for finally saying yes to a ceasefire when there has been a delay? Some people would have liked to see this earlier. Now, it's yeah, difficult... what do you think about that? Do you think they've already lost their political capital? Can they regain that? I think it's difficult for them, actually. I think in trying to, as Simon Birmingham put it, be all things to all people, that they have made it difficult for themselves. And 
I think there is a relief among those who want this ceasefire. Not everyone does, but for those who want it, that they've finally decided to go there. I, I think that it doesn't kind of put that issue to bed for them entirely at all. Look, I want to completely pivot and just talk about one story briefly, which is the big news out of the Sunshine State this week with the Queensland Premier Anastasia Palaget, that longest serving female Premier, announcing on Sunday that she'll be stepping down as Premier, finishing up on Friday. Uh, here she is. Finally, last week, my mind was made up at National Cabinet. I was sitting there thinking this is the fourth Prime Minister, there were all these new faces around the Cabinet table, and I thought to myself, renewal is a good thing. There you go. But did she, Fran, think it herself? And is this an end end of the era for Queensland? Well, we all know there was a fair bit of pressure. Some people had come out publicly, some senior people in Queensland Labor, and called for her to move on. But you're right, it's the, it's the end of, it, of that era. It's also the end of the era of um, COVID premier. She's the last COVID premier still standing, and now she's gone. What will it mean? The Deputy Prime Minister, Stephen Miles, will be sworn in, it seems, as premier of the Labor caucus. Now, the Queensland election is just under a year away. Labor's trailing in the polls. So the question now is, does the changing the leader pull them out of this tailspin? Does it give them a chance to refresh or is it just shifting the deck chairs on the Titanic? We can't know that yet. We do know that Stephen Miles is uh, not shy and retiring type, so he'll be getting on the front foot straight away, I'd imagine. Gloves off. Let's see how that changes the dynamic. But, you know, nine years, it's a long time in government, especially in a state where the federal voting pattern suggests so overwhelmingly that Queensland sympathies lean more towards the conservative side of politics. It is a really significant change, I think, this, and it will have implications for the federal kind of campaign, I think. People do see a difference between federal and and state politics, Hmm. but it does change the the, the way that this will play out. And so I know federal Labor is looking very carefully because as they stare down another federal election, they, you know, are unlikely to be at that high watermark in WA where they won, you know, an extraordinary number of seats. I think that is unlikely. You know, you've got to do the maths of where they'll get the seats. Uh, Queensland's going to be key to them. And And they haven't done too well. There hasn't been a happy hunting ground for them for the last few elections. So, you know, and they want to avoid minority government or even losing altogether. So watch that space. On that note, shall we bring in our guest? Let's do it. Karen Middleton is Chief Political Correspondent for the Saturday Paper and our guest for the final party room of 2023. Karen, welcome. Thank you. Woohoo, final one. Woohoo. Great to have you back before the year ends. What a year it's been. Hey, hey Karen, PK and I were speaking uh, earlier about the government's about face calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. PK, you know, made the point she thinks the government may have moved too late on this for it to restore support amongst some here in the Arab community, you know, if domestic considerations were a part of this. What do you think about that and what do you think was the motivation for this shift? I think the motivation was watching the deterioration of the situation in the Middle East. So time really has changed everything. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I spoke to someone yesterday about this and the, the suggestion that was put to me was that they decided to abstain from that earlier resolution in the United Nations because it didn't mention Hamas directly and the attack on Israel on October 7. And this one doesn't either. Mm. It, it does mention a little more, but not as much as the government would like. And it did try to vote for the amendment the United States tried to move that would have uh, increased that language. But the difference, they say, is the situation has 
deteriorated so dramatically and, and there is so much concern around what's happening in Gaza, particularly this issue of moving people to the, telling people to move to the south to get away from the attacks on Hamas and then finding the south is being attacked. I think the government has taken a decision now or the senior ranks that that's untenable and they need to up their level of public concern and that's they've made that statement. The Prime Minister has signed that letter with the other two Prime Ministers and th- that is a change in position. But there is still pressure within the party and clearly there's a lot of concern in the Jewish community about what that represents. Uh, but the government's taken a decision that it, it really needs to make that stand. So so it's made that decision and, it, as you say, the time has moved since that last one and many, many thousands of more, more civilians have been killed. What, what light does that put the opposition's position here then? They're very critical of the government. They're attacking the Prime Minister and Labor as being weak. They're, you know, just standing staunchly alongside Israel. Where does it leave them, that position? Well, they are unmoving in that position. They are very firmly behind Israel and and not even rhetorically raising issues of concern around the Palestinian side. And so we are in a situation where the opposition has taken one very solid position. The government is trying to spread across both sides of the argument because it has people within its party that are very directly connected to both the, the Muslim community and the Jewish community. Mm. So in, in a sense, I think the the opposition is less torn in that direction. Yeah, it's easier for them. Yeah, and so, the, so the domestically, politically, the government is trying to keep... You know, keep faith, pardon the pun, with mm. with all of its constituents and all of its members. And I think the opposition senses, if you talk in domestic political terms, this is a, an opportunity to put huge pressure on the government over an issue that has long been a difficult one for Labor and mm. to really try and wedge it in a political sense, uh, looking at the domestic politics alone. And I think that's we're seeing this binary position or attempt to make a, a binary position and portray the, the government as, as being against Israel when in fact they're trying to say they support Israel and stand with Israel but they and they're deeply opposed to Hamas but they're very concerned about the humanitarian consequences for innocent Palestinians and of course innocent Israelis mm. of this entire conflict. Mm. Now I want to pivot change uh, conversation entirely to another huge story this week Karen and that's of course a little early Christmas present really for economics and politics nerds the treasurer Jim Chalmers <laughs> unveiling the much awaited uh, MIFO the mid-year economic and fiscal outlook or you know I don't know why it's named that shouldn't be um, <laughs> needs a better name now It was a positive economic story broadly for the government following uh, the May budget, which delivered the first surplus in a decade, um, unexpectedly. The MAIFO reported $12.8 billion of an improvement to the federal budget's bottom line. A lot of that on the back of tax, uh, tax that they're collecting. Now, despite all of this, not a lot of cost of living relief. In fact, a pretty meat and potatoes summary. Here's uh, the Treasurer, Jim Chalmers. This update is effectively a stock take rather than a long list of brand new measures and we will consider the budget conditions and the economic conditions uh, between now and the May budget uh, to see uh, whether uh, we will provide more cost of living help. Uh, But I say to every Australian uh, under cost of living pressure right now, uh, one of the best ways that we can get downward pressure on inflation which is smashing household budgets, is to provide the kind of responsible economic management which is a feature of this budget update. So that's the Treasurer, Jim Chalmers. Now, Karen, 
He did say in that press conference that cost of living relief would be considered within the budget and economic conditions. I pressed him actually on breakfast about, well, is that how you see the state street tax cuts, that they will offer the relief? Is that why you're holding off? And he did say, yes, he did think that that was one of the roles that they would be playing. Is the government just trying to hold its nerve? Yeah, they're in a a difficult spot politically, I guess. There's a lot of concern about those tax cuts because they really target the top end. So I don't think they're going to get away with arguing that that constitutes cost of living relief for the whole community. They have to come up with something that's broader than that, I think. But they also don't want to push inflation up. Their forecasts are suggesting inflation will come down within a a year and a half to within the Reserve Bank's target range. And what they're trying to aim for is a, a sweet spot around about the time of the next election where inflation is back down, there's easing off of pressure on interest rates, people are feeling more secure and therefore not demanding as much um, direct relief. And if they can also deliver a surplus, then they can say, voila, look, everything's on the improve. You need to keep us in office. So, you know, they've got this sort of careful equation that they're, they're trying to balance. And, you know, I'm sure the Treasurer was desperate to actively predict a surplus for next year, but held himself back and just sort of said we're on track or we're, you know, headed in the right direction. Um, He's mindful that the previous government, uh, pilloried by Labor, claimed they were back in black, you know, a full year and a half before they were likely to be and then, of course, never got there. So they don't want to repeat that. But they do, they would love it if they could actually get to a surplus next year. And it does look as though they, they will on the current projections and given how much money we're earning from... Iron ore and some of the some of the savings you mentioned just PK were also from pushing off infrastructure projects yes. beyond the next four years. So they sort of sit outside this budget framework. So there's a little bit of pea and thimble going on as well. But if they do get their surplus and they can manage all those other levers to be pulled in the right direction at the right time, they'll be they reckon sitting pretty for the election. There is a, there is sort of something within this though, isn't it? There's significant amounts of this cash bonanza that's come, as you say, from iron ore, from postponing some of the infrastructure spending. A lot of it too came from people in work and what's known as bracket creep, which means people have got a pay rise, which is good, right? But it maybe sort of tapped them up into the next tax bracket. So they're earning more, but they're also paying more tax. And we know that because income tax receipts are up by something like $64 billion over four years. Won't people be looking at that and go, hang on, that's my money, give some back. Does that, you know, really sustain the argument for those stage three tax cuts? I've long been on the record saying I can't see how a Labor government can implement those tax cuts as promised because of the sort of obvious inequity within them. But having said that, you know, tax cuts are all about restoring bracket keep and, and we've got that big time. And in fact, the Treasurer did say yesterday, one of the sort of unequivocal things he did say yesterday was that there will be changes to the brackets in July. So that that is being seen as sort of firming yeah. up the plan. He's, he's used this careful language around the tax cuts that uh, I think the language is, uh, you know, we haven't changed our position he yes. keeps on saying, which is a careful way of saying we're still, we haven't ruled out changing our position, but we haven't changed our position at the moment on tax cuts. But then yesterday he did say there will be changes to the brackets in July. So I think people are, are, are seeing that as an indication that, that those planned changes are at mm. the moment anyway and that's, going ahead. And that's because the PM's put his foot down and said, I'm not going to break an election promise. Well, they have made a big deal of not breaking an election promise. And I, I think 
you know, they're probably going to get walloped either way, um, certainly from the opposition. If they break the election promise, they'll be accused of being untrustworthy with the economy. And if they stick to it, they'll be accused of doing the wrong thing by the low paid. So uh, they're making a decision to stick with the promise at this point. Now, I just want to go to another big story this week. At the end of the year, there's a lot of taking out the trash, so to speak, um, <laughs> all, the, all the other things they needed to do, and that's the 10-year migration strategy. I don't want to labour it for long. Boom, boom, labour. A lot of it is about <laughs> labour. Um, tightening the visa processes for migrant workers and international students. That's going to be a reduction. And getting net migration back to a sustainable level around 250000 a year big resetting of the immigration agenda. Does this neutralise all of the issues that they have around this? No, it doesn't. I mean... <laughs> that was a quick answer. <laughs> well, I mean, it's a it, it's an important shift and the reason they've done this is that the, the system has got all t- tied up in knots and it's a bit of a legacy, partly a legacy of the COVID pandemic emergency phase and the shutdown of the borders and the fact that we couldn't have people coming into the country in the usual fashion and for ages and then all of a sudden when the borders are open, a whole lot of people have come. So that net migration figure, net overseas migration, is the is the rate of growth in people coming in. So we're at a stage where in the past year it's been half a million. It's grown, you know, the people who've come in and stayed here to work has grown by half a million and they want that to pair that back in the next two years so that it only grows by a quarter of a million a year instead. Mm. But the other issue they've got on immigration is, is this problem around the detainees, the High Court. I think the opposition will not let up on that and on the way that is being managed and we are likely to see more um, commentary on that in the in the coming days. The government knows that we're going to get a decision from the Victorian Supreme Court on the fate of Abdul Nasser Ben Bricker, who's a terrorist, convicted terrorist, who's been on a detention order under existing detention regime that is focused only on terrorists, as opposed to the new one they've introduced for the people who've been released from immigration detention uh, in the recent weeks. And his detention order runs out on the 23rd of December and the decision from the court will determine what happens next. The government is seeking to have him not re-detained because it's been made clear that, that the court isn't going to accept that. So they're seeking extended supervision orders on that, meaning he's in the community but under very strict restrictions. Mm. The opposition has already started campaigning on that point and we will see more of that in mm. the two weeks between now and when that decision has to come. So the government has, has addressed the complexities in the overall migration system and that's a longer term thing that may um, reassure some people that they're getting back on top of the whole system and trying to keep things in order uh, and not have a heavy focus on temporary migrants, but they've still got this other issue about the way this recent thing has been handled and I think they haven't quite resolved uh, the public concern about that yet. Yeah, and again, this is very comfortable territory for the coalition and traditionally uncomfortable territory for Labor governments. So, you know, it feeds right into uh, Peter Dutton's sweet spot in a way. It also feeds into the housing crisis, the rental crisis, all of that. But Karen, speaking of where things are at right now, this is our last episode for 2023. The polls tell the story. I suppose the Albanese government is finishing the year in the doldrums. But really, it has been a year in two halves for Anthony Albanese. Labor achieved a once-in-a-century win, by-election win in April, the Aston by-election. 
and then it got hit by the the triple threat, the referendum loss, the Qantas Qatar debacle, which really kind of unsteadied it, and then the cost of living crunch, of course, with more interest rate rises. How do you see the challenge for the Albanese government when it returns next year, which perhaps will be an election year? Well, it's an interesting challenge, isn't it? Because the Prime Minister's got to work out how he can create a reset in terms of momentum and public sentiment. It's not unusual to have a government to become, at the very least, becalmed but, or a bit becalmed or certainly a bit on the nose in the middle of a term. But he needs to find a way for it to gain momentum and get back on the front foot and not look as though, fairly or unfairly, it's being kind of blindsided by things beyond its control or caught on the hop. I think it's hard to know what that is. You know, some people have speculated, do we need a reshuffle? Is that what's going to happen? But when, if you do that when you're uh, under siege a little bit, then you can look defensive. And mm. if you take someone out of a job, you're, you're making a suggestion that they haven't done a good job. And then and you've that, got maybe a, a loose cannon in the ranks. Well, you create mm. ill will and, you, you know, so th- there are some consequences around that that could be negative as well as positive. Now, he may well decide to do that. I don't know. But um, that's, I think, the big, the big challenge for the Prime Minister over the summer is how does he create the atmosphere that goes into next year in a more positive way? And, mm. I mean, they'll, we've talked about the budget. They'll be hoping the closer we get to May that... that things will turn positive and that they'll be able to hand down a budget that is a more traditional last year of the term budget that has some sweeteners in it and makes people happy. But they do want to be turning around this negative sentiment. And the opposition has been extremely effective in hammering the... They are, you know, they've been shameless, can we say, in in some of the things they've chosen, but they have hammered both... Opportunistic. Yeah, and they've hammered both the Prime Minister himself and the government on issues of national security and of being in charge and of being, you know, around and across things. And remember, when Labor was in opposition and Anthony Albanese was seeking the prime ministership, they talked about the adults coming in to be in charge, Mm. that they'll be in control, that they'll explain what they're doing, the people will understand, they will take the people with them. Now, if the opposition can continue its successful campaign, then it starts to undermine that argument. And if it takes hold in people's heads that actually they're not doing what they said and he's not what we thought he was, then that does become more of a long-term problem. So they do have to think carefully about what they can do that that doesn't overreach and doesn't look false (laughs) that can try and turn this sentiment around. Yeah, and and also, and I don't think it's all of them, Karen, I'd love to get your thoughts on this, but I do think that after, and, you know, Fran described it beautifully, I think, and, and it was right, very accurate as a year and two halves, there was a lot of momentum, I think, for Labor or a sort of sense of, you know, aren't things amazing for us after the Aston by-election, right? And I feel like perhaps they underestimated Peter Dutton, not all of them, but some of them. They thought he was electoral poison, but perhaps not as much as they thought. Yeah, I think that's right. I do think it's a it's always a danger if if a political party looks at the leader of their opponent party and thinks that they're unelectable because mm. you know nobody's unelectable. People said John Howard was unelectable. He was he was in you know almost he was Tony very Abbott. low very low double figures when he was when he was opposition leader. They said it about Tony Abbott. Yes, nobody is unelectable, and I think Peter Dutton has proven that he can pull his party in behind him and get public attention and and drive the agenda in some circumstances. It's 
in the immigration stuff we just talked about, you know, it was it was a an external thing in the decision from the High Court, but he was able to seize it and weaponise it. But that's politics, isn't it? I mean, they've got to have policies and they don't have those yet. That's but right. then again, Labor did well implementing its policies at the beginning and that's why, you know, people were, were thinking, wow, this is such a great change. And then they started to falter. And then a lot of commentators I noticed saying, you know, what's Labor's narrative going forward? And that sort of cuts for both sides. But of course, an opposition needs less of that. That's right. And I think you've got to also remember that overlaying or, or underlying all of this is the community anxiety about the economy. We were just talking about mm. it. We are all feeling uh, under stress because of the state of the economy. We're feeling economically insecure. And I think that is why the opposition's campaign on on national security is being so effective because we feel globally insecure because there are so many conflicts around the world that we see. You know, we feel economically insecure because of the economy and, and they were able to... Um, emphasise our physical security in relation to immigration and, and make us worry about that as well. Now, for the government, you know, the thing that has really um, made it extra tough this year has been the state of the economy. So they are really, I think, are, are putting a lot on the hope that the economy turns around, that some of that anxiety starts to lift in the new year and that that makes a few of those opposition arguments, effective as they've been, a bit less potent if people all of us, come into the new year feeling less under pressure. Now, it's going to take a little while, Mm. for sure, and plenty of things could happen. You know, God help us if we have bushfires and floods and terrible things over the summer that can just add to that sense of of stress and and negative sentiment because people will take that out on governments around the place. So if the underlying economic circumstances improve, that will be quite a considerable help to the incumbent government. And we do know, history tells us, that most first-term governments get returned. Um, there's always an, there's, there's always one that will that will break that rule, but um, that is the case. So I think the government is placing a great deal of hope on the improvement in the economy. And I think when we look at the year that they've had, and, and I agree that the year in two halves is a great analogy, um, the the deterioration of the economy has contributed to a lot of the volume uh, amplification of the, the the things that were difficult in the second half of the year. Yeah, I think that's dead right. Karen, you were the perfect guest for our final episode. Look forward to speaking to you again, and I hope you have a great Christmas and New Year. Thanks, and same to you and all your listeners. Thanks, Karen. Have a great summer. See ya. Bye. We'll move to questions without notice. We'll give the call to the Leader of the Opposition. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Prime Minister. Order. The bells are ringing. That means it's time for our question time. This week's question comes from our backbencher, Sarah. Here she is. Hey Fran, hey PK, Sarah here from Gadigal Country. Just wanted to ask, as we see rental vacancies continue to tighten across Australia, is there increasing pressure on the Albanese government to do more in the housing space next year? Thanks, Sarah. There is, (laughs) Fran. Yep, 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 there is. And, um, you know, as I've already mentioned, it's already having the impact on things like the government's net migration decision to lower that net migration rate coming because, of course, people can see there is just simply, there are simply not enough houses to rent, let alone 
affordable to buy in this country at the moment for the people that are coming in. And the people have been coming in, the net migration numbers higher, record levels. The government's announced it's going to try and get that under control. It's a weak link for the government. The opposition is going for it. The Greens have had a big campaign based around rentals in particular. The government hasn't really moved far in that space at all. It's being sort of, you know, clobbered on both sides, really. I think, you know, I've said uh, all along, I think the government has to do more on housing and it has to do more on rental. This is a really big, major weakness or problem for the government. It's actually the biggest, I reckon, Uh, because when we talk about cost of living pressures... There's one whopping one, and that's housing. So Yeah, rent and mortgage, right? Both. Yeah, I think watch this space um, because I know that the government's very aware of um, just how much they need to deliver here. So a really, really great question, Sarah, and we love getting your questions. Now, we won't be able to take them again, of course, till next year, but just just to remind you, the party room at abc.net.au is where you send them. Just to let you know that I, I used to say it all the time and then I dropped it, but I'm going to say it again now recommend us to your friends and subscribe and then give good reviews. It really helps the podcast get known about and we'd love to reach new people as well. We've we've had, I know, so many of you over the years because we've been around for a while now, but we'd love for you to to kind of spread the word too because I think talking about politics is really important, especially in a country that at the moment I think is facing a lot of change. Yeah, spread the word, people. Spread the word over summer. Do it. Now, Fran, what are you doing over Christmas and New Year's? Uh, I'm pretty much hanging at home. Got a big family Christmas coming up and a lot of beach is my plan. It's a simple plan and I'm so looking forward to it. And what you're about you? To it. I'm seeing my sister in London. I'm taking my kids and I'm Whoa, very excited about so it. Not so simple. Very elaborate. We haven't seen her for a while, so I'm very excited about that. We are very close in my family, so very, very excited. Now, we'll be back on the 1st of February 2024. That's the date. I've already put it in my diary. You know... Fran and I, we chew the fat every week. Um, blah, we record blah, this blah, podcast, blah. blah, blah, blah. All week, we're all over these issues. But I'm going to tell you about how the sausage is made, where we do what I call a brain dump of all the things we think are important to talk about. And our wonderful producer, Lara Heaton, has to basically consume our ramblings and help us make it into a podcast, doesn't she, Frank? She does, and she's brilliant at it, and we really couldn't do it without her. She's been a champion all year. Big shout-out to Lara. Yeah, she is um, a delightful person to work with too. And, of course, all of the people that work with us here uh, at RN and ABC News and beyond, um, thank you to all of them. Well, Fran, have a wonderful festive season. You'll be hot, I'll be freezing, but we'll meet again in February. Looking forward to it. See you, Fran. See you, PK.